Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Republican presidential primary field has one less candidate as of this evening. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie has officially dropped out of the race. It's clear to me tonight that there isn't a path for me to win the nomination, which is why I'm suspending my campaign tonight for president of the United States. I know, and I can see it from some of the faces here, that I'm disappointing some people by doing this. People who believe in our message and believe in what we've been doing. I also know, though, it's the right thing for me to do. Because I want to promise you this. I am going to make sure that in no way do I enable Donald Trump to ever be president of the United States again. And that's more important than my own personal ambition. Christie made a number of big statements about the state of the Republican Party, but the one this announcement will probably best be remembered for was made inadvertently on a hot mic. Talking to an unidentified speaker about the prospects of the other candidates in this race, Christie shared his thoughts on former Governor Nikki Haley. She spent $68 million so far, just on TV. Spent $68 million so far, $59 million by DeSantis. And we spent 12. I mean, who's punching above their weight and who's getting a return on their investment, you know? And she's going to get smoked. And you and I both know it. She's not up to this. She's going to get smoked. She's not up to this. I'm not sure about that last part, but Chris Christie may be right about Nikki Haley's long-term prospects in this race. Right now, the place where Christie's exit has the biggest chance of making an impact is New Hampshire. Recent polling shows that Governor Haley trails Donald Trump by seven points in that state. And Chris Christie is polling at 12 points in New Hampshire in that same poll. So could Chris Christie's departure mean that Nikki Haley might eke out a win over Trump in New Hampshire or get very, very close to a win? Maybe. Could Nikki Haley turn that momentum into a win in her home state of South Carolina and then she's off to the races? Unlikely. As Politico's Jonathan Martin points out, after spending some time with Haley on the trail, the GOP's traditional professional class base is eager to move on from Trump, but the party's beating heart is now Trump-loving working-class voters. And the reason why Haley has such high hopes in New Hampshire is because the state is an outlier in the modern Republican Party, less religious, more educated, and wealthier. She and Christie are sitting on the votes of a heavily upscale demographic. Haley's challenge is that New Hampshire may only represent a false dawn, a blip, before the primary returns to states with a downscale demographic more like Iowa. Haley may find hope in New Hampshire, but that would only tempt her to return home to South Carolina and discover that she is Hootie and the Blowfish to Trump's Taylor Swift. Just to be clear, that is Hootie and the Blowfish circa 2023, maybe even 2024, and not 1994 when Hootie was massive. Right? Nikki Haley would probably be delighted to have Hootie and the Blowfish level popularity. 
Anyway, the reason Christie's departure and Haley's potential ascendance in New Hampshire matters here is not because Nikki Haley is going to sweep the rest of the GOP primary states. It is because support for candidates like Nikki Haley and Chris Christie can still tell us something about the broader Republican electorate. In five days, Iowa is going to tell us the actual number of Republican people in that state who don't want to vote for Donald Trump. The number of actual people who are willing to leave their homes in the middle of what looks like it's going to be a Midwestern ice storm and register their disapproval for the man who will probably be their party's nominee. And the New Hampshire primary, a week later, will tell us the number of educated so-called upscale Republican and independent voters who just cannot pull the lever for Donald Trump. And those people are among the handful of voters who may decide this next election, the people who find themselves in the vanishingly small political middle. A recent analysis by The Washington Post found that just one in four Americans live in areas where Democratic and Republican candidates contest general elections, which is down from roughly three in four Americans who lived in those eras, areas in previ- previous eras. Thanks to our singularly undemocratic and anachronistic electoral college system, the fate of the free world is probably going to come down to just a handful of voters in a small number of states. And we are now officially entering the part of this election where the candidates zero in, like with laser focus, on those voters. NBC News reports today that President Biden will be headed to Michigan and Nevada later this month, which are two of America's remaining battleground states. Remember that Joe Biden won Michigan by just over 150,000 votes in 2020. He won Nevada by just over 30,000 votes. And now President Biden is returning to those states to do two things. First, he has to shore up the Democratic coalition. He has to re-engage Latino and Arab American communities that were key to his victories in those states in the 2020 election. In Nevada, remember, Latinos make up nearly 20 percent of eligible voters in that state. In Michigan, there are over 300,000 residents of Middle Eastern or North African ancestry. So President Biden very much needs to keep that coalition together, and he needs to win over a handful of persuadable voters, the kind of people who were maybe in attendance at Chris Christie's farewell speech today, the, the people who may yet find their candidate in Nikki Haley, the people in this country who just know that they do not like Donald Trump. Joining me now are Jennifer Palmieri, former communications director for the Obama White House and the Hillary Clinton 2016 campaign. She is, of course, co-host of the How to Win podcast. Also with me is Jonathan Martin, senior political columnist for Politico, who we have quoted just porno- almost pornographically in this segment tonight. Um, uh, Jen, let me just I'll start. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> uh, Jen, let me start with you first. The, your reaction to Christie deciding to leave this race with, I'm going to call it sort of a messy exit on a hot oh mic. God. I mean, it is, it is classic. It's, it's, Jonathan had a great, uh, his great piece this morning to describe the Republican primary as dulcetory. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it was like a, you know, it was the best speech of the dulcetory primary. But then, of course, he steps on it by trashing the person who is most set to gain, you know, to benefit from him leaving the, uh, from him leaving the primary. But still, I think that, okay, given where we are, that yeah. is, as you laid out, 
unlikely that Trump gets less than 50 percent on Monday night, unlikely that somebody upsets the apple cart here. But if they were, this is the kind of thing you need to have happen. Mm -hmm. You need some unexpected thing to happen on Wednesday night before Monday night in Iowa. And like maybe this helps. It was a very convincing, moving speech. Iowa you know, Iowa picked, did not pick Donald Trump in 2016. They yep. picked Ted Cruz. Um, so there is, you know, it, it is not a, it is not a, you know, the strongest state for him. And this could help just give her more momentum, even in Iowa to come in strong. Second in Iowa and then go into New Hampshire. Do you, uh, J. Mart, Jonathan, um, I, yeah. J. Mart's fine. I, yeah, right? I mean, we're that. all friends here. Um, I'm, I'm almost interested in the Haley Christie support as a measure of like potential Biden areas of growth that I am actually in Nikki Haley running away with this thing for the reasons I think you much more yeah. articulately lay out in, in sure. your piece. What, how do you read yeah. Christie's exit and Nikki Haley is going to get smoked in terms of the broader contours of the GOP primary fields? Well, I think the first thing, first thing it does, Alex, is that it gives Nikki Haley an opportunity with one debate tonight and four more days to go before the Iowa caucuses to say to both the kind of Ron DeSantis leaner and the on the fence Iowa voter generally uh, that don't want Trump to say, you guys don't want Trump. Give me a clean shot in New Hampshire, Iowa. And the way you give me a clean shot in New Hampshire is you get me the second here. That way, DeSantis drops out of the race. And it's basically me and Trump in New Hampshire. Uh, so I'm really curious to see, first off, how she can parlay Christie leaving, not in New Hampshire, but in Iowa first for the kind of pool of pragmatic voters here who mostly want to stop Trump. You know, and then beyond that, yeah, I mean, let's see if she can actually beat Trump head to head in, in New Hampshire. Um, I think that that would obviously be significant. I think losing by eight to nine uh, isn't the same thing for the reasons that we were just talking about, because she then goes to South Carolina, where the demography once again looks more like Iowa. And that's just very tough for her to survive. Yeah, I mean, uh, Jonathan raises in his piece that the, the sort of specter over all of this is class, right? Right. Yeah. This idea of the, class and education. Yeah, almost sort of wrapped together or yeah. twinned in some in some ways. And the reality yeah. is that the Republican Party, as it stands on mass, is not the upscale Ron Brownstein, Pinot swilling or whatever he calls them, <laughs> Barbaresco swilling red the wine wines. Track. The exactly. Wine track. It's good. The wine yeah. track. Yeah. And and yes. and for that reason alone, it almost doesn't. I mean. Nikki Haley can condense the voting block, but it's never going to be as big as Donald Trump. You know, yeah. in, in 2020, it felt like we were oh, in 20, we were together in 2020 covering the um, Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primary. It's too much power for them to handle. <laughs> Just too much energy. It was we broke the, we broke the Iowa caucuses. We did. Um, but it felt like just very synthetic because Iowa and New Hampshire for both Democrats and Republicans don't really reflect the demographic yeah. of the party writ large or the country writ large. And so right. it is it's yes. very and also, you know, Iowa and New Hampshire matter. It mattered a lot for Barack Obama when he won in 2008 because Hillary Clinton was 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 uh, was was the front runner. And also it was a question of can a black candidate win in a very white state? So that was huge. Right. It really meant something. But to when when. The last Republican nominee to win the state of the to win the Iowa caucus 
and become the nominee is with George W. Bush. And, you know, they, they yeah. so these states just don't reflect what the ult- ultimate party who, who really is going to decide who the nominee is. Do you think do you think I'm off track when suggesting that if you're Joe Biden, who's not running, who's not on the New Hampshire uh, uh, ticket, he's not on the New Hampshire ticket, right. foregoing yeah. it for South Carolina yeah. for the Democratic primary process. But am I wrong in thinking like if you're Biden, you look at who's in that audience of Christie voters. Right. You look at who's in the audience of Haley voters and you're like, listen, these guys ultimately aren't going to get the Republican they want at the top of the ticket. Can I bring them over to I my side of the table? I think that is why Biden mm-hmm. has led in polls in New Hampshire. You know, in a lot of battleground states, he does yes. not do well. But, I'm, but I mean, J-Mart will know the, the ultimate latest, but I know, yes. but I said he, he wins in New Hampshire. And I was like, why is that? Because we've been hearing Chris sure. Christie you know, beat the crap out of Donald Trump for months in New Hampshire. It mattered. So I do think that that, that, you know, I think that, you know, his, his, and his critique and what he said tonight is kind of like what Liz Cheney said, mm-hmm. which is like, I am going to d- right. sort of said, I'm going to do everything in my power to stop Trump from coming president. Um, Jay Mart, the, uh, the, 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 yeah. the draft Biden or the right in Biden campaign in New Hampshire is saying effectively, yes. uh, mm-hmm. you know, it, the, we welcome any backers of Chris Christie who want to truly stand against Trump to join yeah. us and writing in Joe Biden, um, and saying Nikki Haley is not the solution. Do you think Christie voters uh, are there? Do you think Haley mm-hmm. voters are thinking in the back of their mind, I might ultimately have to pull the lever for Joe Biden? Well, I think absolutely there's a significant chunk of them. And by the way, that was smart of the, the right in Biden folks to pounce like they did with that statement, um, because there are a lot of New Hampshire voters who are trying to figure out right right now which which ballot to pull, the R ballot or the D ballot. Um, look, I was with with uh, uh, Nikki's supporters yesterday in suburban Des Moines, and I can tell you from talking to a lot of them that some of them will reluctantly pull the lever for Trump this fall if he's the nominee. But there's no question. That some of them just can't get there again. And that, I think, guys, gets to the the key question. If this is going to be Trump versus Biden again, does that 20 percent, mostly upscale, mostly college educated of the old Bush era GOP, do they get back to Biden like a lot of them did four years ago? Do they you know, come back to Trump or do they find somebody else? And this is why the no labels effort is so significant, because mm-hmm. if they put a third party candidate on the ballot, that's a, you know, a moderate Republican. Uh, I think that's an escape hatch, Alex, for the very voter that you're talking about right now. Yeah. What's so abundantly clear is it's going to be on. I mean, we say this every year, but truly the margins are going to be so tight. The Washington Post analysis is just we are so polarized. There's no one left in the middle. And it's literally like, can you find me five voters that are swing voters in the state of Michigan? Biden's going to Michigan and uh, Nevada. I mean, if you're Joe Biden, if he's going back to Pennsylvania for a second time in one week um, on Friday, too. What what? I mean, He's moving, you know, and like they are they're like general election is now we are going. And and I mean, how <laughs> when you think about the potential support he has maybe lost, not forever, but is soft in communities that really matter when margins are like this and beyond when margins are like this. Arab American community outside of Detroit, you know, hotel and casino workers in uh, Las Vegas and Nevada. I mean, how how. How quickly can those numbers re- like what what needs to happen right now? If so I think there be I mean, you know, for everybody who's been worried about the Biden campaign, you should look at the last week and feel really good because we had. So basically, they're like, OK, you know, January 5th went to Valley Forge. It's like, OK, 
general election has started and it laid out the very strong critique against Trump, everything we expected, you know, revenge, right? I am your retribution. He'll be a dictator on day one, like reminding everyone of the greatest hits of all the, you know, the terrible reasons why he shouldn't be president, but then goes to South Carolina and embedded in the South Carolina speech, which was also very moving because it's in the, you know, the, the, the sacred uh, church and the terrible shooting there, um, was the argument to black voters and about the accomplishments. You know, what, what they want to show people is your vote mattered. We're not mm-hmm. sh- saying that everything is great, but what, what they have to do is get back voters that supported him in 2020. That's easier than getting people who voted against you in 2020. And what you have to, what they have to do is say, you, right. you voted for me right. and it mattered and it had this impact. And you see that yeah. in his, embedded in his remarks in South Carolina, vice president's remarks, um, in, in when she was in South Carolina, he's going to Nevada, you know, important Hispanic audience there, Michigan, Arab, you know, concerned about 300,000 Arab Americans yes. in Michigan. Uh, he got booed in, he, he had a protester in South Carolina, somebody who, uh, who, you know, stood up and, and you know, protested for a ceasefire. He handled it well. He's like, I hear you. I respect your passion. They expect that's going to happen in Michigan. They're going to deal with it, but they are rolling. Yeah. They're like, and we are making both arguments at the same time. We're making the big general argument pitch hey, defining Jim. Trump, but then also the narrow, like narrow casting. Yes. To, to very specific demographics about why they should vote for him. Yeah, Jamar, I think for people who I, don't know, the level of precision yeah. guiding these campaigns, it's like, do you like high-waisted jeans, right. Dunkin' <laughs> Donuts, and uh, pickleball? Come vote. Like, we're having a Biden yes, support group for you. Oh, I'm being targeted here. <laughs> um, you, know, I, you know, listening to Jen, um, you know, I'm thinking to myself here, uh, you know, obviously, Biden's got challenges on both flanks, right? He has to get back the center right, Liz Cheney, Republican, and make sure that they don't vote Trump or that they don't take the third party temptation. But just as important, he's going to face a challenge on his left flank from Jill Stein and perhaps Cornell West. And Jen, I'm sort of curious for your view on that. I, I, mean, I think Biden is either going to have to find a way to get a ceasefire in, in the Middle East and or get get Bibi out of office. Uh, otherwise, he's yeah. going to face perhaps the biggest threat he has with voters under the age of 40, I don't think Biden can win next year if Stein and West are on the ballot and the war in Gaza is still raging. Wait, I, I just, think it's very difficult. Tamar, yep. just as a precondition to the hardest one battle maybe in modern American presidential politics, it's get a ceasefire in Gaza or get Bibi out of office. To say that this is going to be a challenging political environment is an understatement. <laughs> My friends, please come back. We have to leave it there. Jennifer Palmieri and Jonathan Martin, better, better Thanks, known Alex. as J. Mark. Thank you both for your time, my friends. We have a lot more this evening, including a potential bombshell thrown by a Trump co-defendant in the Fulton County, Georgia, criminal prosecution. What does it mean for Fonnie Willis? Plus, Donald Trump will not be allowed to turn a New York courtroom into a campaign stop tomorrow. We're going to have more on that coming up next. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs 
Streaming. Game console, console Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Tomorrow morning, closing arguments will begin in Donald Trump's New York civil fraud case. At stake for Mr. Trump is a possible $370 million penalty and his ability to ever do business again in the state of New York. Yesterday, we learned that Trump himself was planning to deliver part of the defense team's closing argument. But today, the judge presiding over this case, Judge Arthur Ngoron, denied that request and posted his entire email exchange with Trump's attorney, Chris Kyes, on the court docket. For those of you who have not read it, it is colorful. Judge Ngoron initially said he would allow Mr. Trump to speak, but only if Trump would agree to several limitations, including one prohibiting a campaign speech. Trump's attorney rejected those limits, calling them untenable and complaining in the most Trumpy way imaginable. This is very unfair, Your Honor. You are not allowing President Trump, who has been wrongfully demeaned and belittled by an out-of-control, politically-motivated attorney general, to speak about things that must be spoken about. Judge Ngoron's response, take it or leave it, now or never. You have until noon, seven minutes from now, all caps, I will not grant any further extensions. Trump's lawyers did not respond, and their client will not be speaking tomorrow. Joining me now is Susan Glasser, staff writer at The New Yorker and co-author of The Divider. Um, Susan, I was really struck by a number of different exchanges in this this court uh, filing on the docket. But the first was the way in which Trump has managed to puppeteer literally every single person around him, including his lawyer in an email exchange with the judge. I mean, I, I am not a student of the law, but it just doesn't seem to be a very typical thing to have a lawyer writing things about um, a, 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 a wrongfully demeaned client uh, who has been belittled by an out-of-control, politically motivated attorney general, and that the client needs to speak about things that must be spoken about. Um, how do you, what do you make of the, the odd relationship that is, is being um, revealed here? You know, Alex, could I? Uh, I? I've always thought, and in fact, our reporting suggested that that Donald Trump was personally dictating many of the statements that it seemed like he was personally dictating, right? Whether that was from his White House communications office or his campaign team now or his many, many different teams of lawyers. I think one issue that's clearly going to come up in 2024, in fact, is that Donald Trump is currently employing so many different lawyers in so many different legal proceedings. Uh, and your point about how is he possibly managing to uh, literally dictate what the content of individual email exchanges are with different lawyers and different judges in all these cases while also running for president? It's a pretty good question. Clearly, he took some time out of prepping from his uh, his town hall discussion on Fox News in order to uh, get involved in the, the nitty gritty of this exchange in New York. 
Yeah, there's another part where the, <laughs> the lawyer, Chris Kyes, writes, the attorney general seeks the unconscionable and draconian penalty of prohibiting President Trump, who has contributed both professionally and personally to the economic development, job growth and real estate footprint of New York for some 50 years. I mean, I'm surprised they didn't mention the crowd size at his inauguration in this email. It was like literally Trump verbatim. But to your point, there's only so many pieces of correspondence that Trump can dictate before he won't have any more time left in the day to actually mount a defense. Um, the other part of this that struck me was that Trump cites the death of his mother-in-law as a in a bid for um, an extension on this on these closing arguments. Susan, as you point out, Trump is still doing his Fox Town Hall tonight, and yet. That didn't seem that the, the timing of his mother-in-law's death did not affect his ability to participate in that. Um, is Trump the kind of person that mourns in, in your reporting to um, an unusual degree? There is not a lot of evidence to suggest that Donald Trump was particularly close either to uh, his wife's parents or, you know, that he even, for that matter, spends an enormous amount of time with Melania herself, who has been scarce in evidence uh, in, in the three years since Donald Trump left the White House and is not regularly by his side. Uh, so uh, there's not a lot in the in the public record to suggest that Donald Trump is 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 a grieving man tonight. Uh, if you look at him, uh, he doesn't seem to be in that in that mode. He's like the kid who's, you know, always saying that he can't turn in the term paper because another grandparent died until the teacher gets suspicious and says, wait a minute, how many grandparents do you have? Yeah. Or and then is found at the video game arcade, like playing Pac-Man uh, when he's supposed to be grieving. Um, the, I did notice that there is a, a, a few lines from the attorney general that or the attorney general's office explains why it's important to not allow Trump to give a closing um, statement, a closing argument in, in this courtroom. And I'll just read an excerpt uh, what they outlined. They basically say that Trump is prone to giving irrelevant speeches. He lacks self-control and is evasive to responding to questions. Allowing him to speak would invite more speeches, campaign style, that would disrupt the proceedings. I think that effectively nails uh, that that hits a uh, nail on the head in terms of why it's actually dangerous to have Trump give him unfettered access to uh, the microphones in these court proceedings. But it does beg the question, Susan, like this is an instance where the judge can say Trump cannot talk. There are going to be a lot more trials, presumably, or at least one or two. And there are going to be a lot more courthouse steps that Trump faces. And I think the question is, you know, how can the judicial system manage this process in a way that it does not become, uh, you know, effectively a series of stump speeches for the Trump candidacy? Yeah, no, I think this is the the bigger picture context that's really relevant to 2024, Alex, is this question of the extent to which Donald Trump is able to turn these court proceedings that, against himself on very, very serious charges of uh, criminal malfeasance. In this particular case, he stands to you know be penalized literally hundreds of millions of dollars. And yet Donald Trump is is remains firmly of the view that there's no microphone that can't be turned to his own advantages as long as it's turned on. And I think also he's looking at the experience that he had in 2023 when the enormous wall-to-wall -wall coverage uh, that attended his multiple indictments uh, in, and charges in the criminal cases against him, that that was actually, as he sees it, perhaps the key to his political resurrection. And, you know, the breathless coverage that, you know, hanging on his every 
little utterance. And I think that that has been factored into his campaign plan for 2024. And, and this judge, you know, has a pretty clear read on it. But um, you're right. If it's a matter of every single day in a criminal trial and he's standing on the steps, there's nothing to stop people from from live streaming that and giving Donald Trump this enormous, uh, unique campaigning uh, situation. Susan Glasser, always, always with the, the deep and thoughtful insight and great reporting. Thank you for joining me tonight. I appreciate it. We have still more to come tonight, including some jaw-dropping new comments from a billionaire-turned-social-media troll Elon Musk. Comments that link aviation accidents to corporate diversity initiatives. Plus, one of Donald Trump's co-defendants in Georgia has leveled some major allegations against District Attorney Fonnie Willis. We're going to look at how that might affect the case down in Fulton County, coming up next. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated, all right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's news requires more facts, more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. Back in 2021, Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis hired this man, Nathan Wade, to be the special prosecutor to help lead a criminal investigation into Trump's alleged attempts to subvert democracy in the state of Georgia. Mr. Wade was the one who presented that case to the grand jury, the one that ultimately indicted Trump and 18 other co-defendants. And now one of those criminal co-defendants, Michael Roman, a former top Trump campaign official, is, without offering any evidence, accusing D.A. Willis, Willis and special prosecutor Wade of engaging in a romantic relationship. Now, the filing refers to Wade's ongoing divorce proceedings and undisclosed sources who claim that Wade and Willis vacationed together in Florida, Napa Valley and the Caribbean, alleging the vacations were paid for using taxpayer funds that Wade received from Willis's office. Fulton County records show that Mr. Wade has been paid over $650,000 in legal fees since January of 2022. Mr. Roman's lawyer asks that D.A. Willis, Mr. Wade, and the D.A.'s office be disqualified from prosecuting this case. Now, neither Willis nor Wade has publicly commented on these allegations, and a spokesperson for the D.A.'s office said that any response would be made in a court filing. Joining me now to explain exactly what this means for the Georgia case is Anthony Michael Christ, a constitutional law professor at Georgia State University College of Law. Professor... Can you help me understand? Well, first of all, given where these allegations are coming from, um, how much stock do you put in them? Do you see anything potentially hazardous um, in in the sourcing here? Well, I think we have to be you know kind of cognizant of the fact that this is a parroting 
of a filing in a divorce proceeding. And so, uh, you know, divorce proceedings, family law, uh, domestic relations issues, right? These are highly contentious uh, fights that often contain documents with allegations, which may or may not be substantiated, which may or may not be true. Um, and so we have to take I think all of us with a grain of salt, given the source, um, it may be true. It may not be true. I think we really have to be cautious about that and wait for more information from either the district attorney's office um, or more evidence from Mr. Roman's attorney to substantiate these claims. So just to be clear, um, a lot of the stuff that Michael Roman is accusing Willis and Wade of uh, was to be found in the divorce filing from Mr. Wade's soon-to-be ex-wife. Um, and, and therefore, um, conclusions may have been drawn in that filing that aren't necessarily the ones that in independent counsel would perhaps draw. Although I will say the thing I think that that in the reporting on this in both the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, the figure that stands out is the payments uh, made to Mr. Wade in the total of $653,000 for his services as a prosecutor. It, it is worth mentioning that D.A. Willis's salary is $198,000. $198, Does that sort of discrepancy uh, seem unusual to you? Well, I, I think it also should be noted that uh, Mr. Wade is charging the county $250 per hour, um, which for a an attorney in the city of Atlanta, that's not a, a particularly high hourly rate. Um, at the same time, I think there is a a political question that that must be answered as to whether there would be a better way to spend these funds or whether, um, you know, perhaps some other kind of contractual arrangement would have been a better, uh, you know, use of public funds. But but the, the funds itself, uh, I think the rate itself is not exorbitantly high. Um, I think we should also be cognizant of the fact that Mr. Wade and, and all the attorneys on this case um, are certainly spending an exorbitant amount of hours on it. So if you're charging an hourly rate, which is a fairly market rate, um, that's going to total to a lot of money. So on the one hand, I, I don't know if it raises any alarms, uh, you know, as something inherently corrupt or, you know, inherently, uh, you know, not great. Um, on the other hand, it does present, I think, a political problem um, and one that, that does raise legitimate questions is whether there would be better ways to spend this money or if, if there should be other kinds of caps in order to protect uh, the taxpayers' money. Right. So in terms of sort of ethics, but legally speaking, I mean, do you foresee this having an impact on Fonnie Willis herself or Mr. Wade in terms of their ability to prosecute this case going forward? I doubt it. It really is a high bar to disqualify a prosecutor's office. Um, you would have to show something um, in terms of a concrete conflict of interest. At most, I think we could say that this is certainly a political problem. It certainly clouds the investigation. It creates a, a partisan talking point, uh, particularly for Donald Trump to attack the legitimacy of, of the investigation um, and the subsequent indictments. Uh, but it doesn't really present the, the kind of smoking gun conflict of interest that, to me at least right now, would require some form of disqualification. It certainly is not the kind of evidence that would require a dismissal of the indictment as a constitutional matter. Um, we've already seen Judge McBurney, in, who was overseeing the, the grand jury case, and Judge McAfee talk about uh, you know special prosecutor Wade, um, and because he had he failed to sign his. Uh, a prosecutorial oath at one point. Um, and so there was a question as, as to whether that somehow tainted the indictment. And both judges said that there was no evidence that Mr. Wade's involvement in the investigation and the indictment process uh, prejudiced 
prejudice, prejudiced uh, these, these defendants in any particular way. So I think that there will be a parallel ruling uh, that would kind of find the same thing here. Um, and again, we don't really know all the facts. It could change if there are more salacious you know, facts that come out. But as of now, I, I think it's really un unlikely that these allegations derail the, the uh, prosecution. Um, well, your insight here is invaluable because obviously uh, Donald Trump is uh, having a field day with this as he has been over over several weeks with baseless ac accusations leveled at the DA. Uh, this has certainly provided fodder for him and having some real actual legal perspective is, is very helpful. Uh, Professor Anthony Michael Christ, thanks again for your time tonight. Thank you. When we come back, the right wing's latest example of what they say is a possible peril of promoting diversity in the workplace. And this one involves passenger planes malfunctioning and possibly falling out of the sky. That is next. Boeing, you know, have the, the doors have fallen off the planes, but at least, you know, they're meeting their diversity goals. We can't link the diversity efforts to what happened. And, if, you know, that would, you know, take an exhaustive investigation. But it's worth asking at this point. I titled the chapter D.I.E. because this can kill. You heard it on Fox first. Diversity, equity and inclusion can kill. That segment last night was loosely about a door plug blowing out of a Boeing 737 MAX 9 plane during an Alaska Airlines flight last Friday. But rather than talking about safety concerns, Laura Ingram asked, did this happen? Did the doors blow off? Because airlines focus too much on diversity, which is maybe sort of like asking whether the Challenger exploded because a woman was on it. This nonsense did not stop at Fox. Last night, the world's richest man, Elon Musk, picked up this line of logic and just ran with it. Yesterday, Musk replied to this post on X formerly known as Twitter, which claims that the average IQ of a U.S. Air Force pilot is 120, and the average IQ of pilots hired from HBCUs, which are historically black colleges and universities, is 85 to 90. The Post explains that this means that graduates of HBCUs are just above what is considered borderline intellectual impairment. First of all, what? Second of all, is this someone really guessing the IQs of all the attendees of HBCUs? I mean, Martin Luther King Jr. went to an HBCU. Toni Morrison went to an HBCU. Kamala Harris, Thurgood Marshall, Oprah. HBCUs are not bastions of intellectual ineptitude, quite obviously. Also, pilots of all colors have to pass rigorous flight tests. Also, pilots aren't usually responsible for structural issues on airplanes. They just fly them. Elon Musk, however, just went with it tweeting, it will take an airplane crashing and killing hundreds of people for them to change this crazy policy of D-I-E. He means D-E-I. And do you want to fly in an airplane where they prioritize D-E-I hiring over your safety? And people will die due to D-E-I. This is our public discourse now. We have Fox News heavily implying planes can crash and kill people because companies hire too many black people. And we have the richest man in the world, the owner of one of the most important global forums for communication, openly and embracing and promoting paranoid racist theories.
Coming up, we are going to talk about someone else who loves to go after DEI programs, but as an elected official with the power of the government behind him. That's next. We lead the nation in school choice. We protected women's sports and we stood up for parents against the woke mob. We have eliminated so-called DEI from our public universities. We have banned sanctuary cities, instituted policies to deter illegal immigration. Let's continue to make Florida the envy of the nation. Hmm. That was Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis yesterday delivering his annual State of the State address. If you are a Republican living in Florida, you probably love that speech. But the problem is that what sounds good to Florida Republicans does not necessarily sound good to the rest of the country. Understanding that truth seems to be one of the many issues for the DeSantis campaign. And another is not admitting, as a former DeSantis campaign staffer told my colleague, Matt Dick, Matt Dixon, that the political making of Governor Ron DeSantis does not happen without Donald Trump. It is what made DeSantis who he is today for better or worse. Joining me now is Matt Dixon, NBC News national political reporter and author of Swamp Monsters, Trump versus DeSantis, the greatest show on earth, or at least in Florida. Matt, congratulations on this book. A very timely release, as um, we are going to be talking a lot about Governor DeSantis tonight and tomorrow. The first is, you know, for people who don't know the interesting and tangled history between Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, it goes back to like 2016. Can you talk a little bit about it? Yeah, 100 percent. The forward facing relationship between the two going back to the endorsement in 2017 when DeSantis first ran for governor has been sort of the defining messaging, the defining story between the two. But going back to even before he was governor in the primary and, and early on in that race, as they were sort of feeling each other out, there was tension between the two. It was never sort of the political relationship that, that we all thought it was at that time. There's been tension and sort of, you know, rifts throughout the process. They did a very good job of, of working together when he was president and DeSantis was governor. And they, they, they held hands, had picnics in the park and did everything they needed to to project the idea of unity. But it wasn't always what, what we thought it was. And we've kind of now seen that come out in the presidential race. Well, yeah, I mean, I, we all well, we all some of us remember the campaign ads with DeSantis as a small child building a wall and wearing a MAGA onesie. Yeah. But that sounds like it was more just sort of pomp and circumstance as opposed to deep seated admiration that Ron DeSantis necessarily had for Donald Trump. There was absolutely a checking of box in that moment in time in the sense that that was when Donald Trump was at peak political powers. Endorsement helped DeSantis, you know, gain a ton in the polls. He was nationally not just relevant, but he was everything at that moment in time. So they realized they had to do what they had to do in order to sort of continue on with the the dog and pony show of, of the endorsement and making sure everyone was on the same page. Even though I think, and, and we report in the book, that the DeSantis camp, specifically Casey DeSantis, wasn't necessarily in love with the ad. Mm. I, yeah, well, when your children is, you are used as MAGA props, I think most mothers might not like that. Um, I, I want to ask about, because you're such an expert in Florida and Florida politics, like there, I, I'm old enough to remember when Florida was a swing state, mm-hmm. when it was a state the Democrats stood a chance of winning and before it became kind of a petri dish for far right wing conservative uh, policy. Im- implicated in the sort of rise of arch right wing politics in Florida is the f- sort of collapse of the Florida Democratic right. Party. 
How did that happen? Well, it, it, it's been about a decade or so in the making. When, when President Obama won Florida twice, and, and during that period of time, there was about 700,000 more registered Democrats than Republicans in Florida. Since that time, Republicans have kind of taken control of every lever of state government. So really, there's no incentive to give or support Florida Democrats. The transactional donor types, the national money is all kind of stopped. And at that same period of time, this has been ex- expedited by Governor DeSantis. He's spent up roughly $5 million or so just in voter registration. Mm. So right now, Republicans have a huge voter registration lead in Florida over Democrats. And throughout the modern history of the state of Florida, that has been the reversal. So there's been one side with money. There's been another side that has sort of lost resources and power. And we're, we're seeing the result of that. And, and in the meantime, I mean, what DeSantis has done to the state, I, I think at his own behest, has Democrats fling or people, you know, people who enjoy, I don't know, diversity, equity and inclusion, for example, do not have a home in the state of Florida, where Governor DeSantis has championed some of these, as we said, arch right wing policies. That has not worked for him nationally, though. Can you talk a little bit about the gross miscalculation between what DeSantis sure. imagined the nation wanted, which was Florida, but the con- but nationally sure. and and like how that is redounded to his, you know, I mean, I think there's several layers to what has been underperforming expectations at the presidential level. But certainly we've heard uh, large donors. There's this gentleman named Ken Griffin who gave $10 million to, to Governor DeSantis's gubernatorial campaigns, who has said sort of the culture war focus and this heavy, intense, you know, focus and insistence on not moving from that has sort of turned him off. And there's been other donors to that effect as well. So he's sort of lost at least the the non-Trump money, the the, the donors who wanted to support a non-Trump candidate yep. because of that. And and I think so. He's running out of money, and the message isn't necessarily you know where it needs to be. Hey, it's Mel Robbins. Let's cut to the chase. There is a change you want to make right now, but you're waiting to feel motivated. You don't need motivation. You've got me. You can change your life anytime you want. And when you're ready, the Mel Robbins podcast is here to help you with inspiration and simple science-backed tools to help you create a better life. Listen to me and you'll feel motivated. All right. Listen and follow the Mel Robbins podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.